Emotions are not just mindless jolts of energy, but they embody what psychologists call appraisals of the world with respect to what's good and bad for us. Coming up on In Contrast, Martha Nussbaum. I'm Ilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Martha Nussbaum is a philosopher known for her work in ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, feminist philosophy, political philosophy, and philosophy and the arts. She currently teaches at the University of Chicago, including at the law school and in the departments of philosophy, divinity, political science, and classics. She is the author of numerous books, including The Fragility of Goodness, Sex and Social Justice, and Not-for-Profit, Why Democracies Need the Humanities. Her most recent book is The Monarchy of Fear, A Philosopher Looks at Our Political Crisis. Martha Nussbaum, it's a pleasure to have you in In Contrast. Well, Ilan, it's a great pleasure to be on the program. Well, I want to devote our conversation to your most recent book, The Monarchy of Fear, A Philosopher Looks at Our Political Crisis. The book starts with you being in Japan when the election was coming to a close and your reaction to the news. The first section of the book is about fear, although from there on you move into other emotions. I would like to ask you, what role has fear played in your life since the election? Well, I think, you know, as I say in the book, fear plays a big role in all of our lives and often a subterranean role so that we don't even notice that we're being motivated by fear. But after the election, I noticed that my own fear was disproportionate. And of course, there were things that it was right to be afraid of. But I think like so many Americans were getting carried away by fear. And I think on both the left and the right, there are these fears like, oh, the end of the world is at hand and we have to do something desperate. So I wanted to examine fear. And there I was supposed to be happy and smiley in Japan receiving this award. And underneath, I had this terror of what was going to happen in America. Therefore, I thought I'd better examine that. What is the role played by fear? And this led me to a quite radical rethinking of my other work on emotions, because up till then, I had written on separate emotions separately. I'd written one book on anger, one book on disgust, a book on compassion, and so on. And I realized that it's important to look behind that at the role of fear, which I think is evolutionarily early, and it's also developmentally early, and therefore it kind of bubbles up in times mm. of stress and infects the other emotions and makes them get personally toxic, but also politically toxic. You struggle, as we all do, Martha, with trying to describe and define emotions in terms of what they are, as if the dictionary would reduce them. Could you, for me, as difficult as that might be, tell me what fear is? Well, of course, the bigger background of all of this is that for many years, I've been working out a general theory of emotions, pointing out, which is not all that controversial, actually, that emotions are not just mindless jolts of energy, but they embody what psychologists call appraisals of the world with respect to what's good and bad for us. And so what fear is, and I think Aristotle already got this right, it involves the thought that there's some big bad stuff outside that's looming or impending, and that I am 
powerless to ward it off, because if I thought I could control it, then I wouldn't really have fear. So that's the general account of fear. And then, of course, there are different types of fear, different objects of fear. But I think they all have that common element. In the book, you talk about having experienced your own education, your own intellectual development by getting feedback after living in different cultures. Is fear, from your view, being a universal emotion registered differently according to cultures? Well, I think it is, but only within limits. That is, I have done a lot of cross-cultural study and reading about the emotion. But the landscape of human life is not all that different in different cultures. That is, we're born as helpless infants, quite mature cognitively, but unable to move, which is not the story of any other animal. Any little horse or a little elephant that couldn't right away walk would be dead. But a human infant is so helpless and yet quite aware of the things that it needs. So that's a trajectory for both fear and bad behavior, ordering other people around, which is pretty universal. But then, of course, how the baby is handled, how early it's weaned, is there breastfeeding or not, and so on. All these cultural practices do make a difference. And then what about the fear of death? At a certain point, we learn that we are going to die someday. And so then infantile fear, I think, rears its head again. But it depends what you think death is. If you really, really believe that you're just going to transition to another world, now I think often people who parrot that word don't really believe it. But if you really, really believe it, then you don't have the same kind of fear of death. And I mean, also, if you somehow were convinced that human life is a bad business and it would be good to be out of there as quickly as possible, then you might not fear death. So I think, you know, culture, religion impact that, but also physical circumstances. One very interesting culture that the anthropologist Kathy Lutz has studied is a Micronesian atoll that she studied where people are so physically insecure. A tiny little island, they got a fish in stormy seas for their very survival. And so every emotion is a kind of fear. So even their word for love is really, I mean, it's a word fago that's untranslatable. It's a kind of tender but fear-suffused kind of compassion for vulnerability. So I think that's very different from a more secure, physically controlled culture. And then there are all kinds of other things that make a difference. What do you think about fear? If you think that fear is shameful and unmanly, you're probably going to feel fear in close proximity to shame. But if you think that fear is just a part of human life, then you'll be likely to be more open about it. And I think in America today, there are both. And often it's rather gendered, but not always. But men certainly don't want to own up to fear. I wanted you to go a little further on that because I was going to ask you about that question. The difference between responses to fear in men and in women, and particularly in men and in women in America today, this statement that you just made of not owning as a man, do you think that gender responses are being reshaped with the Me Too movement, with other larger educational pushes in how we acknowledge both men and women, maybe more men in this case, the fact that we're fearful of something and that we can become more vulnerable? Well, I think, of course, there have always been different kinds of masculinity. I once edited a book called American Guy, Masculinity in American Law and Literature, where we looked at different American styles of masculinity. And I wrote about Jewish masculinity. Other people wrote about queer masculinity. But, you know, in both 
I would say, the Jewish understanding of masculinity and in the queer understanding, the sense of owning up to bodily vulnerability is much larger than in the dominant American sort of cowboy on the range understanding. So we could learn a lot by just even comparing different cultures within America. So I think, though, that there's more of a gradual change. At least my students know men are more likely to come and say, well, you know, I have a learning disability. I have some problem. Even law students who are usually the most macho and the most controlling, they'll say, well, I don't want to give my presentation at the start of class because I get panic attacks. I think that's terrific. Mm -hmm. And if they can go through life and just say that, then they're probably a lot less prone to being disabled by that. You go after fear in your book to emotions like disgust and envy and jealousy and mm -hmm. anger, which is a centerpiece. Mm -hmm. All reactions that have evolved in this moment after the election, as you are seeing in America today. I wonder if I can stop just momentarily on the difference between envy and jealousy. I was struck by how you explore and contrast the two of them. I thought that envy could be positive. In fact, while reading this section in your book, I thought of good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, the good envy and the bad envy, the bad yeah, envy that yeah. pushes you down, the good envy that encourages to say, well, I want something that this other person has, and I'm going to do something for myself in order to get it. But is that closer to jealousy? What's the relationship between the two? Yeah. I mean, actually, there's a very fine young philosopher whose dissertation committee I was on a few years back, Sarah Protasi, who's got your view. And we talk for many hours to see whether we really differ or whether it's just a verbal difference. Because I would say the good kind I would call emulation. So what is the difference? If you have emulation, that means you see somebody else who's doing good or having good, but you think that by work and imitation, you can get it. Whereas envy, I define, and I am agreeing here with John Rawls's wonderful section of the theory of justice, as a situation where you see someone else having the good things, you feel you can't get them, and then you just want to spoil the other person. Now, That's what Sarah Portasi would call bad envy. But I think, you know, I don't care about language just so long as we're clear what we're talking mm -hmm. about. But I do feel that usually we use the word emulation for the good kind because it suggests possibility and striving. Now, jealousy, I think, is just a little bit different because it's about a specific competition for a specific rival. So it's not so global. You know, if Iago did not have jealousy... If he had, that would be a smaller problem. But he had envy of Othello, thinking, oh, he's got all the good things and I can never have that. And that's particularly likely to lead to a kind of spoiling behavior. Whereas with jealousy, you can win. Mm. And the rival can be defeated and whatever. Sometimes it becomes pathological, as in Proust's novel, where nothing that Albertine can say or do can get rid of the sense that there's a rival out there somewhere. I think in most of human life, it's not so crippling. Hmm. But envy is crippling if you just think, I'm one of the ones who's an outsider. If you look at the profiles of a lot of these serial killers in America, and particularly the ones who call themselves now incels, the ones who can't get a woman, those are enviers. They're not jealous. They just think other guys have all the goodies, and I can never get it. And so what they want to do is kill these women. So that, I think, is the difference that I would see. Anger. How do you handle your anger? Well, not always well, you know. 
So in my bigger book on anger, I divide anger into three realms. There's the political realm, there's the intimate personal realm, and then there's what I call the middle realm, like when you're traveling and some irritating person <laughs> sits next to you and so on. I have most trouble in that middle realm. Somehow or other, in the intimate realm, if I ever once love somebody, I never really dismiss them from my life, and I'm able to segue from one relationship to another. I mean, all my ex-lovers are my friends, and people regard that as slightly strange, but it is my way of life. And I guess I often think that the relationship with an ex-lover is better because you don't have to live with the person. So, well, I mean, if the person has certain irritating traits and you've broken up with them for that reason, like political differences, you don't have to put up with that if you are not living with them. And my ex-husband has great political differences with me. And yet I'm extremely fond of him. And I am glad to have him as a guest and to hang out with him and so on. But living with him, I mean, every day, that would be very difficult, the tension and stress of the political argument. So in the middle realm, the trouble is that people are thrust upon you that you don't choose. And I think the reason I get on well with the exes is that I chose well. People are really good people, and I'd like to keep them in my life. But we go into the TSA over this morning on the way to the airplane. I was selected for random screening, this very rude TSA person. And I kept saying, well, please, I would quite like to be able to see my valuables on the belt. And so, well, anyway, it just got me very annoyed because she was very rude. So that happens to me a lot. And I should follow the advice of Seneca, tell myself this just isn't so important. It's not worth getting upset about. But because it's not so important, you know, I don't work on it enough. If I did work on it, I could probably get myself to a point where I'm not upset. But usually, it just isn't the thing I want to do next in my day, is to do mental exercises about that. Maybe you are going to be the person who finally solves a mystery or an enigma that I have had since immigrating from Mexico to the United States some 30-plus years ago. In Spanish, we don't have a difference, or at least we don't stress it, between being angry and being upset. And I remember upon arriving to this country that I could not quite distinguish between the uses of being angry and being upset when I had my first child. And I would tell my wife, the baby is angry. And she would say, no, the baby's upset. Mm -hmm. And it's because I was using the term enojado or molesto in Spanish and simply yeah. translating it. Is there a difference in the emotional realm between the two? Well, first uh, of all, there uses. are these experiments about labeling babies' emotions where they find that paradigms of masculinity mm. play a large role, that if the person thinks this baby is a boy, they'll ascribe anger to the child because they think of anger as aggressive and striking back and so on. But if they think it's a little girl, they'll say something like, oh, she's so upset, she's so frightened. And so... I don't know whether your difference is about that. Yeah. But the difference, I mean, look, anger involves several different things. It involves the thought that something wrong has been done and some kind of um, outrage at that. And I think that's fine. But what it also involves, and all the Western and also the Indian definitions of anger say this, is the desire to strike back and the thought that it would be really, really delightful to get your revenge. So that's the part that I think is very problematic because, of course, it causes great aggression and upheaval in society, but it doesn't do any good. If your child has been murdered, 
you kind of get bamboozled by the culture into thinking, oh, if I get that person killed, that will somehow do some good for somebody. And most of the support for the death penalty in America comes from that sort of strike back thinking. Well, it's magical thinking about the cosmic balance, but it has no reality. It doesn't do any good, and it does a lot of harm. As Gandhi once said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. So I think what's important, and here I would take Martin Luther King Jr. as my model, he said that when people came to his movement, they were very angry. And okay, that was all right, because it got them going. It got them not to despair. They came out of their homes and they came to the movement. But once they got there, the anger had to be, he put it, purified. And also he used the word crystallized. And what he meant was that payback part has to be lopped off and you keep the protest part. And so then, of course, what do you substitute for the payback part? Well, you turn to the future and you try to figure out how to solve the problem. And he then thought that several other emotions had to come into play, like faith, hope, and love. Perfect segue, Martha, for how you structure your book, because you talk about that beginning in Japan of reacting to the news of the election. And then the reader, along with you, navigate these various emotions and understand them in a variety of ways. And then you come to a last section of the book where you say, what do we do next? How do we react to all this? You talk about voluntarism, for instance. Let's put ourselves in action in this or that way. And I wonder if that is the therapeutic approach of reading a book like yours. Read it, contemplate these emotions, and then do something about it that will not be revenge, that will not be frustration, or that it would be frustration applicated to some sort of action. Well, that is basically my approach, but it's also part of what I say is the difference between hope and fear. If you think about hope and fear, they seem to be opposites, but they're really very similar because both have the idea that something important is in great jeopardy or uncertainty. But fear has this negative aspect. It involves a shrinking back. So it's not just the emotion, but it has action tendencies in it and hope. And here again, I've learned a lot from a young philosopher named Adrienne Martin, who wrote a very good book on hope. She points out that hope is more like a syndrome than just a plain emotion because it involves action tendencies. So let's say your relative is in the hospital and is quite ill. If you have fear, you'll probably be paralyzed. You won't do anything useful. If you have hope, you'll get going and you'll do something. When maybe it's just getting a second opinion. Maybe it's making the person feel more confident and fight the disease and so on. But anyway, hope is active. So I then say, well, what would that mean? We could look at the glasses half full. We could look at it as half empty. But the two are quite different in terms of what we actually do. So how can we get ourselves more into this hopeful action mode? I think a lot of this is personal and contextual. So these are really just examples thrown out for people to think with. But I think the arts are great sources of hope. If you participate in a play or you just even see a play, it just gets your emotions going in a more constructive way. And I think participating in music or theater, the other arts, is also often a very rich, non-hierarchical way of relating to other people. I've talked a lot in other things about the Chicago Children's Choir, which addresses issues of class, race, and poverty by just bringing kids together to sing. So that's one thing. Another thing is, indeed, political participation, working for a candidate, 
we saw so much of this. And after the book was finalized and had gone to press, the midterm elections saw such a tremendous outpouring. In Chicago, we had a sweeping wave of new people, the new faces and the new ideas that came out. And it's really such an energizing thing. Another thing that I do think generates hope and strengthens hope is liberal arts education. Because people learn practices of respectful debate and they cultivate their imaginations, both of those are essential if we're going to have a culture where people solve problems together. And I'm so concerned about polarization on campuses and the fact that people think that they don't want to be in the same room with somebody who voted on the other side. So, in fact, a lot of my new prize I'm actually giving to set up a series of lunches where groups of students will talk about controversial topics together in the same room. Do you register a maturity as a culture in our nation in the way we can talk about emotions? Are we stuck? You talk about your childhood, your relationship with your father. You Mm -hmm. talk about the many changes in very positive ways that have come in spite of the moment of fear in which we are. Are we better at handling emotions collectively, nationally, or it's impossible to even make such an assessment? Well, I think it's very much a patchwork. On the one hand, psychoanalysis is almost dead. People don't care about it anymore. They think, oh, we'll take a pill. We'll fix all our problems. And I think that's a great loss because although psychoanalysis had its flaws, and actually I think not thinking about the political dimensions of a person's anxiety is one of the greatest flaws, nonetheless was a noble art, and it still is. And to just think that everything can be fixed by some pharmaceutical thing. That's part of the origin of the opiate crisis, certainly. We have to learn to live with discomfort and pain. On the other hand, I do feel that men and women are exploring their differences better than before, or at least the differences are out there on the table. And I've had great discussions with students about sexual violence and sexual harassment, which show a great progress over when I was in graduate school. So I'm hopeful about that. We just have to keep working. I think religion is sometimes a force for good. And certainly the in my city, the black churches are a major source for good dialogue about the emotions. And so when people are outraged and aggrieved, they find sources of turning their bitterness into love and constructive work. So in that South Carolina church where Dylan Roof shot people, they said, well, we think that we want to extend to him some sort of forgiveness and love. And of course, they were deeply pained, but they must have been in the practice of thinking about love and forgiveness well before that, or they would not have reacted Mm. that way. And that's true of the black churches in Chicago, too. Now, not every religion is good at that. I must say, I think some religions are schools of sectarian partisanship and so on. But I think also my own synagogue in Chicago is a pretty good source of conversation about the emotions. And we talk a lot about the music we sing and what emotions that embodies. So I do feel like there are many pockets of progress. At the national political level, things are in a pretty terrible mess. But let's just see what happens next. Mm. Is there any juncture that you can visualize where revenge is acceptable? No, actually not. Of course, I think punishment is often valuable and indeed necessary. 
But to me, punishment is mainly important in two ways, as a deterrent, partly for that person, but more importantly for other people. I think sexual harassment rules that have teeth and sanctions attached have been enormously valuable as deterrents. There's just much less of that going on because most people are rational and they will be deterred. You know, the other thing, of course, is reform. And punishment can, if there are decent conditions, the conditions of our prisons are so scandalous and disgusting. But there are other countries where punishment actually does serve the purpose of reform because they have work release programs, they have programs of education, and there is education in some U.S. prisons. I think this is something you've taken an interest in in Mm -hmm. your own career. I've read the Karpowitz book about the Bard prison education program, and that interests me greatly because I think if there were hope for reform in the American penal system, it would be through education. You were talking about the value of art, and maybe, though you didn't use those words, the teachings that come from art. When we see a play like Othello or Macbeth or Hamlet, where there is a pushback or even a revenge, do you think that art has that power to depict that atrocious reaction in order to stop us from doing it in the audience? subliminally teaching us not to do what Hamlet is about to do, encouraged by a ghost? Well, I think not every playwright has the same view I have. Of course, you wouldn't (laughs) expect that. But it interests me greatly because I'm a great opera fan, and it happens that as an amateur singer, the roles that suit my voice are often the women who take revenge. Mm -hmm. Donna Anna, Elettra in Mozart's Idomeneo, and so You know, I investigate that emotion by singing these arias, and it's very, very interesting to do that. But I think there are very profound depictions of the uselessness, the enervating and destructive character of revenge. The best that I know is Richard Strauss's Electra. She's obsessed with revenge. She can't relate to any other person. I mean, even Orestes is probably a figment of her imagination because he's sung by a basso and therefore is probably a father fantasy and not really another person. Strauss has got it entirely right with a lot of help from Sophocles, namely that revenge just eats you away until at the end, of course, all she can do is just collapse in a catatonic state and that's the end of her. Now, I think Mozart has all those insights, too, and Mozart is my great favorite, but I've just finished writing a program note for our lyric opera about Mozart's Idomeneo, which is probably most people don't know that opera, but it is an opera about the old revenge morality that's powered by superstition, but the father is told by the gods he has to pay for being saved from the sea by killing the next person who appears, and of course, it's his own son. So, Mozart is certainly reflecting on the Abraham Isaac story there. And it turns out, of course, that that's a perfectly horrible idea. And it's uh, just an idea that we have to get rid of. And so the young man is the one who takes over, well, the two young people build a new world. And at the end, when the father is about to execute the son anyway, a voice just comes out of the heavens and says, no, we have to have the realm of love instead. And so the realm of love and brotherhood takes the place of this. I actually called my program note the Republic of Love. I wanted to call it, but they changed it instead of the monarchy of fear, because it is. It's Mozart's enlightenment view. We have a kind of Republican sentiments of equality, brotherhood. He was a lifelong Freemason. So he really believed all this stuff. But if we're going to have equality, it's got to be held together by something other than fear. It's got to be love. 
You are a great advocate, and you find in the Greek and Roman classics enormous wisdom and inspiration. And your work is permeated with beautiful references, deep and complex, about what Sophocles or Aristotle or Plato or Socrates or Cicero say or don't say about death and life and living the good life. And so I wonder, as an educator like you are, how to keep on bringing the classics to a general audience, not exclusively in the classroom, but more broadly, at a time when reading is at a record low, when the connection with foreign languages is being seen as suspicious because of the anti-global moment and anti-cosmopolitan moment in which we live. And because something that is old means that it's dusty, and if it's dusty, it doesn't have freshness, how do we bring the classics to the larger audience to show that what lasts ages but doesn't disappear? Well, you know, people are tired of hearing about Trump, Trump, Trump all the time. They want to step back and they want to delve into something richer that really is about the whole of human life and all of our possibilities. And I think the great tragedies and the philosophical works have that ability to tap into our own selves, not alone. I mean, if I were trained in Indian culture, I'd be talking about the Mahabharata. But in any case, that's what I know about. And more and more as I wrote the book, I started out with the plan, well, it's a trade book, I better use a lot of contemporary examples. I moved more and more away from that because I felt, no, that's not what is needed. What's needed is a space within which people can reflect about themselves And thinking about Aeschylus, thinking about Sophocles, this is really what people love. And now, of course, they only love it if they know it. But here, I think theater is the great solution to your problem. Productions of these plays have not stopped. At our court theater in Chicago, we've had a whole cycle, not only of plays by Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, but we've even had Seneca's dramas performed last year. Right after the election of Trump, we had a production of Sophocles' Electra directed by an African-American director, Sirette Scott, wonderful creative director and with an amazing actress as Electra. So, you know, people are riveted by these plays mm. and they hold the stage because the language is foreign. That means it has to be translated so it can be translated into the idiom of today. And we were lucky at the Court Theater. We had a wonderful translator, Nick Ruddall, who recently died, who translated them all into a kind of fresh, speakable English. The difficulty with Shakespeare, of course, is you don't want to translate it, but you kind of have to struggle to understand it sometimes. But mm -hmm. with the Greeks, that's not the problem. We're coming to the end, and I have one more question to ask you, and it goes back to the first chapter and to my first question, too, and that is your reaction to the election. It's a two-part question. On the one hand, we have in the White House a man who doesn't seem to be in control of his emotions, a man whose fear and disgust and anger and envy run away from him and then throw us all into a quagmire. What does one do as a citizen, as a responsible citizen, in the face of a leader whose control of his emotions is so erratic? And the second question that I have is, in what way is this book written for the entire American people? And in what way it is written for those that felt fear 
immediately after the election and not for those that felt enthusiasm. I can see 33% or however many of the American population saying that's the wrong emotion to describe in the 2016. It was excitement. It was enthusiasm. It was being ecstatic. Well, let me answer that second one first. I think it is really for everyone. Of course, it's not just for America. It's actually being translated into various languages right now. And I wrote a preface for the German edition talking about how Europe's problems are similar and also different. But anyway, you know, I have members of my family who are very ardent Trump supporters, but they're worried too. They're worried about polarization. And of course, what I think is that their whole allegiance to Trump begins in a kind of fear for what's happening to America, the loss of manufacturing jobs, all of those things that happen in rural America. But then after that, there's the fear of how the democracy is breaking apart. And one of the things that they constantly send me news items about from the right-wing press is indeed campus polarization, people not being able to talk to each other. You know, whatever else we differ about, we agree that we want a viable democracy. We ought to be able to solve our problems together. So now to Trump's personality. As a former professional actress, I'm a little hesitant to say this is a man who's out of control because I actually think he can quite well be understood as a very brilliant actor, a kind of improv actor who reads the cues given by the audience and then reacts to that. I mean, that's, after all, what a stand-up or improv performer has got to do. And so when I think about his remarks about women, for example, it's not so significant to me whether he thinks this in his heart of hearts. I think what's significant is he's tapped in to a reaction on the part of American men in his base. So anyhow, what do we do about that? I think we really need opponents who are optimistic, hopeful, and pragmatic, willing to make common ground with other people. I think there are a lot of such people among the Democrats, and the much maligned Nancy Pelosi is certainly among them. And there's so many new faces. Now, we'll see who's going to run, and I have my own favorites. But my favorites, as you could imagine, would be of the pragmatic, cheerful sort, and hopefully with a good degree of emotional self-knowledge. Well, Martha, it's been extraordinary to have you in the show. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you very much. This was great. The health of a culture might be measured by the way it handles its own emotions. Does it acknowledge their existence? Do emotions get the best of us? Is reason allowed to understand the reach of these emotions? When talking to Martha Nussbaum, I was struck by how passionate she became about describing how we humans handle emotions. She moved her hands freely. She smiled. She enunciated every word with precision. It was a tour de force, a thinker reflecting on the art of being alive. In The Ethics, the 17th century Dutch philosopher Baruch Spinoza made a map of human emotions. He talked about dozens of them and described joy and sadness as our most basic ones. It is through emotions that we connect with the world. We fall in love. We're angry. We're jealous. To be considered educated, though, one is told to keep the emotions in check. Too much is dangerous. Too little is a sign of detachment. In today's world, there's a sharp division between how men and women are supposed to feel. 
Men are trained to hide their emotions and pretend they don't exist, whereas women are encouraged to move in the opposite direction. They internalize pain and, as a result, may become depressed. There is also the cultural dimension of emotions. The Puritans who settled America were said to be Stoics. They battled adversity by silencing suffering. Other cultures like Hispanics articulate what they feel, to the point of getting entangled in that drama. As an immigrant society, we change as new infusions of people enter our midst. Is America becoming less rigid as time goes by, more engaged with its own emotions? Overall, we're still quite childish when it comes to our collective emotional life. We become frustrated easily, or angry, or disgusted. And rather than giving ourselves a moment to think about it, we act in ways we later regret. That's because we prefer not to talk about the inner turmoil that besieges us. Socrates once said that democracy is a noble but sluggish horse and that he, Socrates, was a gadfly waking it up with his sting. Nussbaum also seems to believe that democracy is a slow-moving animal, in part because those who live inside it get caught in emotional conflicts. Her eyes sparkled as she described hope as an emotion that counteracts fear. Hope is what keeps democracy going, individual hope as well as collective hope. Do we know how to recognize hope when we see it? And can we explain the effect it has on us? Next time on In Contrast. Throughout Greece and various regions, music has a distinct function. It's a tool for survival. It helps heal It helps placate. It helps one mourn. It actually has a distinct function. It's not solely entertainment. It's a, a tool for survival. It's medicine. Christopher King and the music of Epirus on the next In Contrast. For previous episodes, including our interviews with Joseph Stiglitz, Saskia Sassen, and George Will, visit our website at nepr.net. Let us know what you think about In Contrast. Review us on Apple Podcasts or send an email to radio at nepr.net. You can also follow us on Facebook where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our intern is Delina Hadgu. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavans. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions.